Um, so, continuing in the Encounters with Jesus series, I'm going to be sharing from Matthew 26. Uh, Matthew 26 is a remarkable chapter, and it, it, it's a chapter that kind of details the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I've titled this message, The Lamb Led to the Slaughter. Because in Matthew 26, we see Jesus, the Lamb of God, being led and being prepared and being readied for the crucifixion. And um, I've taken the title from Isaiah 53, verse 7, which says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And the prophet Isaiah was prophesying about the coming Christ, the coming Messiah, that he would be led to the slaughter. Now, Matthew 26 is such an amazing and a marvelous chapter that, to be honest, it deserves its own teaching series. You know, I wouldn't have half an hour to be able to preach on everything and do justice to it um, that we find in Matthew 26. So I'm going to give us just a little bit of a brief overview of the whole chapter, and then I want to focus on the Passover. So Jesus and his disciples are in a room and they're eating and partaking of the Passover festival and feast. And I think it's extremely significant and prophetic. So I'm gonna go into detail about the Passover, which then leads into when Jesus established um, the the communion, when when he established communion. So we look at that. So um, yeah, so Matthew 26 begins with Jesus saying to his disciples that he'll be delivered up from, for death just within two days during Passover. We also find that Jesus is anointed with ex- expensive perfumes in a leper's house. And the disciples are like, why is this person, why is this woman wasting all this money anointing Jesus? And Jesus says, no, she has blessed me because she's prepared me for burial. So that's the second time Jesus is warning and telling his disciples that soon he'll be delivered for death. So anyway, um, after this, um, Jesus, um, one of the 12 disciples, Judas, agrees to turn over Jesus to the chief priests. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. And, um, And so the chief priests say that, okay, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver if you betray Jesus to us. What's quite interesting is that, uh, on a side note, in the book of Exodus, 30 pieces of silver was the price that was paid for a slave. And 30 pieces of silver was the price that Judas was paid to betray Jesus. And we know that Jesus said that he came to serve and not be served. As we read further into the book of Matthew, we see that the night before Jesus crucified, he holds a Passover meal with the disciples. At this meal, Jesus predicts and he prophesies that there'll be an act of betrayal and treachery by one of the 12. And also at the same meal, it's when Jesus introduces the sacrament of Holy Communion that will represent the new covenant in his blood. Now what Jesus does at at, um, what Jesus does here when he introduces the Holy Communion is a tremendous watershed moment because everything is about to change. Jesus is boldly declaring that the old is gone and that he's establishing something brand new. In just one day, the old covenant would be dead and buried and a new covenant, a better covenant in the blood of Christ would give light and hope to all mankind. 
Anyway, Matthew continues his narrative, informing us that Jesus tells the disciples that they will run in fear and they will stumble because of him. Jesus quotes an Old Testament um, prophetic um, scripture where he says that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. Peter gets into an argument with Jesus and Peter says, no, Jesus, I'll never leave you. I'll never betray you. I'll die with you. And Jesus says, no, Peter, before the crow roosts three times, before the rooster crows three times, that's right. Um, I don't even know if I've got that right. But anyway, before that happens, you will deny me three times. And um, as the time draws near for this ultimate climax of the ages, Christ is found praying in a garden in great sorrow, in great turmoil, and in great tribulation. He knows that his time is at hand and his time is short. And um, Jesus, you know, this famous verse, Jesus says, Father, if possible, take this cup from me, but not my will done, but yours. I don't think Jesus was so much in anguish over the physical pain that he was about to suffer I think it was the physical pain, it was the knowledge that he was gonna take upon the sins of the whole world. It was the knowledge that um, he was gonna be separated from his father, God the Father would turn his face from the Son for the first time and the only time in eternity. And Jesus knew what was coming. It's quite interesting, when Jesus was on the cross, he cries out, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time and the first time in scripture where Jesus does not refer to God as Father. And it's because he had taken upon the sin of all mankind and the Father turned his face. But we'll look into that a little bit later. So anyway, Jesus is praying in the garden and he finds the disciples sleeping. And um, Jesus rebukes the disciples and says, can't you just pray for me for one hour? Do you not know that the time is near and the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of sinners? And it just feels like when you read the book of Matthew, right from verse one and two, Jesus, all the way through towards the end, Jesus is informing his disciples that his time is short. The son of man will be betrayed. The son of man will be handed over to be crucified. And and Jesus is warning them and he's letting them know and he's trying to prepare them. But it just feels like they were kind of dull of hearing. It just feels like they didn't quite understand it. It's like it was just going over their heads. And as a result, they all abandoned the Lord. But So that's just a quick brief overview of Matthew 26, but the main thing that I wanna focus on this morning is the Passover. It's this Passover feast and festival that Jesus and the disciples were partaking of. So if you've got your Bibles or you're taking notes, it should come up on the screen. We're gonna be reading from Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 to 19. So it's Matthew 26, verse 17 to 19. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Jesus said, go into the city to a man and say to him, the teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. So let's ask a question, I'm sure many of you know, but what is the Passover? So the book of Exodus in the Old Testament tells the story of Israel's deliverance from bondage and slavery in Egypt at the hand of Pharaoh. 
So the Egyptians were grumbling. The Bible says that their grumblings, their complainings, their moanings as a result of the slavery and the hardship that they were experiencing went up to the Lord. As a result, the Lord found Moses, anointed, called and equipped Moses to come to Egypt and to be God's mouthpiece to help deliver and set free the Israelites from their slavery. Um, As a result, With God's dealings with Moses and Pharaoh, there were 10 judgments that came upon Egypt. And the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that after each judgment, Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go. And it was this final act, it was this final judgment, it was 10 of 10, the last of the 10 that ultimately set free and delivered the Israelites from Egypt. So God brought about 10 plagues of judgment against Pharaoh and the gods they worshiped. Um, However, just before the last of the 10 judgments on Egypt, the Lord told Moses and Aaron that every Israelite family must acquire an unblemished lamb. So to find a lamb that was without spot, without blemish, it needed to be a male lamb and they were to, to acquire that lamb. Those families and households were to slaughter their lamb at midnight, then place some of its blood on the doorposts and the lintels of that household. This would be the Lord's Passover, because the Lord will pass through Egypt that night, and in an act of judgment, he would strike down every single firstborn in the land of Egypt. And that just didn't include firstborn sons, It included all the firstborn animals and livestock as well. In an act of mercy, when the Lord saw the blood of the lamb on the Israelite houses and on the doorposts and on the lintels, he passed over them and no harm came to that household. It was through the blood of this lamb and the death of the firstborn that the Israelites were saved from the hand of Pharaoh. And in this quote, in the households of Egypt that night, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. And this is significant and it's extremely prophetic because Jesus, his death, his sacrifice is imminent. It's days away, it's hours away, and he's found in a room eating of the Passover with his disciples. You see, it's the Passover feast and festival that the disciples and Jesus were celebrating. And interestingly, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul makes this statement. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The slaying of the Passover lamb and the salvation of the blood is symbolic of Christ as the Passover lamb and the shedding of his blood, his innocent blood, on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins and our subsequent salvation from spiritual bondage and slavery to Egypt. In Exodus was this act of final judgment, the death of the firstborn in all the land that paved the way for the Israelites to escape Egypt. In a prophetic parallel, likewise, it was the death of Christ, God's own son, the firstborn of of the dead that paved the way for our escape and our deliverance from death, sin, and separation from God the Father. Before we came to Christ, we were trapped in darkness and enslaved to spiritual Egypt. But when we put our hope in Jesus, when we put our faith in his blood, 
when we received for ourselves his death and his resurrection, same blood that was on those Israelite houses that delivered them is the blood of Christ that comes upon us and delivers us from sin, from disease, from sickness, from spiritual death. And then we are transferred, transformed by the washing of his blood to become children of God. It's also very interesting to me that while many in the nation were celebrating and preparing lambs to be slaughtered for Passover, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was likewise being prepared to take away the sins of the whole world. When the Lord and Moses instituted the Passover festival as an act of remembrance, it was to be a sign of new beginnings and a reminder that they were delivered not through the mercy of Pharaoh, but by the hand of God Almighty. You know, I heard one scholar say that one reason God hardened Pharaoh's heart was not to be mean, was not because it was unfair for him to do that to Pharaoh, but it was to make a point to the Israelites that Israel was saved not by the mercy of Pharaoh, not by him relenting, but by the power of God. So their faith would not be in, in Pharaoh's mercy, but in the mighty power of God to bring deliverance, healing, and salvation. And in reference to the Passover, so actually, before I go on to that, I want to say this. So um, after, the, after the judgment event, after this final plague, this 10th judgment, where every firstborn son in Israel was killed, um, God had uh, Moses and Aaron establish the Passover feast or festival. And the Israelites were to do this every single year as an act of remembrance to God's delivering power and how God set them free from, from Egypt. But when I'm studying the Bible, when I'm looking at what, what the Apostle says, Christ our Passover lamb, I can't help but think that the Passover feast and festival that Jesus was celebrating, that had been celebrated for thousands of years, didn't just look back to an event that happened in Egypt, but it was also a prophetic message, it was a prophetic declaration, it was a prophetic statement to Christ, the Messiah, who was to come. That, not, that, that, that the blood of the lamb, the death of the firstborn son, would not just save one nation, but ultimately would be salvation to all mankind. And, and God was saying that every time they practiced, every time they partook of this festival and feast, it was pointing ahead. It was pointing ahead to Jesus' coming. It was pointing ahead to what God would do through the sacrifice, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in reference to the Passover, I couldn't help but think of this account found in the book of Acts. I'm not too sure if it will come up on the screen, but I'm gonna be reading from Acts chapter 16, Verse 27 to 33. So that's Acts 16, 27 to 33. You might be thinking, what on earth does this have to do with Passover? But we'll, we'll explore that in a second. And this is the Apostle Paul and Silas are in jail. They've been thrown in jail for the preaching of the gospel. And verse 27 um, starts with this. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. 
Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I love that. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, but not only you, you and your household. And when I look back at the Passover and I see that this angel of death came over Egypt, but every Israelite household was saved. Every Israelite household was delivered. No harm came to that household. And if that was the blood of an animal, how much more the power of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who would shed his blood for the salvation of the whole world. And I know there are people here where perhaps whole households haven't been saved. Perhaps you're a wife and your husband's not saved. Perhaps you're a husband and your wife's not saved. Perhaps you had children who once knew the Lord, but they've walked away from the Lord. But I want to encourage us this morning that it's time to have faith again. It's time to believe again that there's power in the blood for the salvation of whole households to be saved again. And we need to start praying, we need to start believing that the prodigals will return, that husbands will get saved, that wives will get saved, and we'll see restoration and redemption and salvation in whole families and whole households, in our church, in our community, and in our town. And even if loved ones live far away, the blood of Jesus has power to reach them. And in prayer, in intercession, we can plead the blood of the lamb over our family members. Amen. Come on. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. You and your whole household. I don't know if I want to touch on this, but I will, just just to make the sermon maybe a little bit more interesting. Um, So, when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Right? So the jailer's like, oh my gosh, prison doors are open. He's about to kill himself. Paul cries out, right, with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are here. And then the jailer called for lights. So obviously the jailer didn't see them. You know, this is a long time ago. They didn't have electricity. This this jail cell probably was underground or in a deep dungeon somewhere. It would have been pitch black. Now, possibly Paul's eyes adjusted to the dark so he could see the jailer. But could could Paul see that well that the jailer was about to kill himself? I don't think so. I think Paul got a word of knowledge. I think the angel came, opened up the prison doors, the place shook, the jailer rushes in, sees the doors open. I think Paul gets a word of knowledge, this man's gonna kill himself. So Paul says, no, don't, don't harm yourself. Why do I think that? Because in fear and trembling, this man comes and falls face down. He had no reason to fear the apostle Paul. I think a supernatural event took place. The Apostle Paul got a word of knowledge and saved his life. He comes and he, in fear and trembling, he goes, what must I do to be saved? It's amazing. I'm sure the jailer knew that they were in there for preaching this gospel, this message about Jesus. I'm sure he heard them singing hymns and praising God. And he falls down, what must I do to be saved? So we should be open, say, God, give us words of knowledge. God, give us supernatural experiences and encounters that are gonna touch the lives, even hardened jailers around us. So, um, yeah, I just thought that would be interesting. But anyway, this is important. Let's move on. So it was during the Passover meal and festival that the disciples were celebrating where Jesus introduces the sacrament 
of holy communion and he reveals a new covenant in his blood. So this should come up, gonna be reading from verse 26 to 29. This is often titled the Last Supper in, in, in most Bibles. So verse 26. Now as they were eating the Passover meal, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. So Jesus, he takes the bread, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples, he said, this is my body, eat it. You see, one of the requirements for the Passover festival for the Israelite households was that they had to eat the entire lamb. Anything that was left over had to be burnt the very next day. So here Jesus is, during Passover, the lamb of God is saying, eat my body. This is my body which is broken for you. Eat it. And prophetically, in Exodus and the festival, you know, carrying on from there, they had to eat the body of the lamb. And also interesting, the lamb was to be male, Jesus was male, and the lamb had to be without blemish. And we know that Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life. He is the lamb of God without spot, without blemish, who walked the earth. Jesus fulfilled what we could never fulfill. He fulfilled the law. Anyway, in verse 27, Jesus takes a cup And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. Just as the blood brought salvation to the households in Egypt, The blood is poured out for our forgiveness to bring us salvation for the forgiveness of our sins, our transgressions, and our iniquities. And every time we take this cup, every time we take of this bread, in a mystical mystery, we're not just eating a little bread and drinking a little wine. In In an act of remembrance or as a ritual, Actually, I think something is happening in in the spiritual realm. Because in verses 29, Jesus says to disciples, you won't drink this fruit of the vine with me until you drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. Jesus was saying, this is gonna be my last drink with you. But that's not the end of the story. We will drink again in my Father's kingdom. And I feel like that every time we partake of communion, In a mystical mystery, there's a communion and a fellowship and an intimacy with the Son of the living God. Why? Because the Apostle Paul says that we are now seated in heavenly places with Christ. Christ abides in us and we abide him. And when we take this meal together as friends, as family, as as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we are taking it with the Lord himself and he's drinking it with us. So communion's not just a ritual, it's actually an encounter with the Lord himself. Similar to water baptism. Water baptism is is a powerful spiritual experience for the believer and I believe that communion is also. And it's interesting, the Apostle Paul, he says, when you take communion, don't do it in 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 a manner that is unworthy. 
in case you heap judgment on yourself. And I was thinking about it, and I thought, actually, none of us are worthy to take communion. I think to take communion in an unworthy, in an unworthy manner is to be indifferent to the blood that was paid for us, is to be indifferent to the body that was broken for us. It's go, it's just the blood of Jesus, it's just the body of Jesus. But I think to drink communion in a worthy manner is to go, wow, Jesus, the Lamb of God died for me. He broke his body for me. He spilt his blood for me. Praise God, hallelujah. Lord, I'm so thankful that you paid that price just to save me and to rescue me. I think that that is a worthy manner in which to take communion in remembrance of the Lord's death, his sacrifice, and his resurrection. You see, the blood of Jesus that was shed 2,000 years ago still speaks a better word, still carries unimaginable power, still heals broken bodies, still restores broken hearts, and the blood of Jesus has power to restore everything that is lost. Not only that, but it's the blood of Jesus that has granted us access and adoption to be in relationship with our Heavenly Father, a relationship without restriction where we can boldly approach His throne of grace. See, the old covenant was based upon laws, rules, regulations, and rituals, but this new covenant in His blood is, is based upon the law of life and freedom and liberty in the Holy Spirit. Our righteousness is not earned, but is freely given. Our acceptance is not based on our performance, but rather our adoption. Salvation does not come through the working of our hands and how hard we try. Salvation comes to us by the blood of the Passover lamb, freely given, freely given for us. You know, I remember some years ago, I was praying with um, one of my very good friend's fathers, who is a Christian, and we're praying about a situation and a circumstance of a, that, that a friend of ours was in. And we thought, man, we really need to pray for him. Like, let's just get, get time together, get on the phone, and we spend some time interceding and praying and crying out to God um, for this individual. And we're praying, and um, we've probably spent about 10, 15 minutes praying, and uh, my friend's father got you know, quite excited and, and there's a little bit of awe and wonder in his voice. And he's like, Ashley, I have to share this with you. But while we're praying, I had a vision. I was like, oh, wow. And I love visions. I'm like, yep, uh, let's go for it. Tell me, I want to hear. And he says, in this vision, I saw the Lord pick this man up in his arms and gently hold him. I then saw the Lord Jesus take the smallest drop of his blood and place it on the forehead of this individual. As soon as the blood touched the forehead of this man, every demon, every demonic entity, every principality and power at work and at play in this man's life and in his family utterly freaked out in terror. The enemy, the demons freaked out in terror and he said, I saw them scatter and flee in every direction. They weren't scared of prayer. They weren't scared of someone who's been to Bible college and done three years and got a degree in theology. 
What utterly terrified the enemy was the blood of the lamb. It's the one thing that they cannot stand. It's the one thing that they cannot resist, is the blood of the lamb. You see, the blood of Christ is the ultimate bastion of defense, the supreme banner of hope, the all-conquering sword of victory for the believer. As the old hymn says, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. We are blood-bought, we are blood-washed, we've been purchased with the blood, with a blood price of incalculable value. It is Christ's crimson robes that have granted us robes of righteousness and salvation. It is his nail-pierced hands that granted us joy instead of mourning and praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. The judgment that we deserved was put upon him and we are now new creations in Christ. And before we have communion, before Ali comes and leads us in communion in a bit, um, I wanna bring something to a close. The blood of Jesus is not just powerful for the forgiveness of our sins at the moment of salvation or when we very first put our faith in Jesus. The blood of Jesus still has power to forgive you now, today, and forevermore. You don't need to be a prophet to know that in a room this size, there are people that are living with guilt and shame for struggles and for sins or for things that they've done in their lives. But when you come to the communion table, know that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you completely from all unrighteousness. His cross, his death, his resurrection has made us brand new creations in Christ. And I say this to quickly finish on 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 to 8. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. Paul says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Paul's not saying get rid of the old so you become new. Paul's saying you are already new. Therefore get rid of the old so that what's new may come to the surface. What's new may flourish. The new creation that's in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Get rid of the old junk so that the greatness of God that is in you can start to rise to the top, can start to influence your life and can start to transform the world around you. Why? For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed already. He's been sacrificed already. And the iniquity that was laid upon him, we deserved, but it was put upon him. And when we put our faith in him, we're born again. The same spirit that raised him from the dead raised us from the dead. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So Paul says, therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So as we come to the table this morning, let's be joyful, let's be thankful, let's be excited that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And if there is something in your life that is wicked, if there's something in your life that has some malice to it, just bring it to Jesus. He paid the price for it. He'll take it from you. He'll wash it away. And I think Andy said this, Jesus doesn't just clean the slate. 
He removes it completely. And as far as the east is from the west, the Lord has removed our transgressions. The Bible says the Lord takes our sins and he throws them into an ocean of forgetfulness, never to come back to the surface. It doesn't matter how deep, how dark, how difficult your sin, your trial, your struggle has been, nothing can compare to his outstretched arms. We are saved, we are healed, we are delivered, we are made whole, we are redeemed, and we are restored by his body that was broken and his blood that was shed for us. Bless you. Thank you, Ali. Mm. Thank you. Mm.